1 through 7, or 1 through 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus. I'm going to read the whole thing. I say to you, hear the word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of God, the son of Abraham. Abraham was father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to, Christ, to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that um, this whole Advent series, um, different as it might be from normal Advent series, might be transformative in the lives of our congregation and any who would hear. I pray for myself that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, we're gathering. This is this is a new sermon series, and it's the same series every year. At least it's the same theme, right? We're in the season of Advent or Christmas, and during this time of year, during this season, we celebrate the fact that Jesus came in the past, but we also contemplate the fact that he will come again in the future. In other words, the word Advent means to come or coming and so we celebrate the coming of Christ in the past his coming in the future and his coming into our lives even now what we're going to do this year is something different it might be quite different we'll see how it goes but usually I preach through the church lectionary at Advent and what the lectionary is is just sort of a, a batch of readings that the Protestant churches have agreed that during this time of year you preach, you know, one, two, three, and four, and that, that, during Easter you preach this text, and I usually just follow it because when you've been preaching for 20 or 30 years, um, you need someone else to sort of mix things up for you. So instead of trying to figure out something new, I just follow that. This year, we're going to be doing something different. We're going to be looking at the first two chapters of Matthew, but we're going to be looking at the first two chapters of Matthew through the lens of trauma. Merry Christmas! <laughs> right? 
why, you, you'll, I hope it will become obvious to you why that is so important. That looking at, at, at just acknowledging the fact that trauma happens. And by, what do I mean by trauma? Well, let's look at the, the APA definition of trauma. And basically, when you ask the question, what is trauma? Basically, you hear this, you hear trauma is an emotional response to a terrible event like an accident, rape, natural disaster, immediately after the event, shock and denial are typical. Longer-term reactions include unpredictable emotions, flashbacks, strained relationships, and even physical symptoms like headache, nausea. While these feelings are normal, some people have difficulty moving on with their lives. Psychologists can help these individuals find constructive ways of managing their emotions. Okay? So the, the, the bottom line is this, that the APA says that trauma is when all these bad things happen to you, which they do. Every person in this room has experienced some sort of trauma on a continuum of just maybe someone called you a name in school at one point and it hurt your feelings to having been abused physically or sexually or having been in some kind of accident or having lost a spouse. All of us have those things in our lives and what we're learning more and more is that they affect every part of our lives. They affect us physically, they affect us emotionally. Now what's interesting to me about the APA definition is the way it ends. Right? It says psychologists can help these individuals find constructive ways of managing their, I put trauma, their emotions. And that no doubt is true. And there are probably many good secular psychologists who are very, who are fantastic at helping people manage the emotions that come and accompany trauma. The, the problem is, is if you only ever have coping mechanisms for your trauma, do you ever really get better? Here's, here's what I want to talk about during this Advent season, is, you know, the APA says psychologists can help individuals find constructive ways of managing their trauma. GTA, that's me, G. Thompson Allen, says Jesus can help these individuals actually transform their trauma. That in the providence of God, Jesus uses all the bad things that happen to us in order to produce something actually big and good and joyful in the end. And we're going to look at that right from the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. You see, when Jesus came, we celebrate the coming of Jesus. Jesus didn't come into sort of a whitewashed suburban world. Which, by the way, it's only whitewashed. All the trauma that happened in Jesus' day happens today in the whitewashed suburban world. It's just we're better at hiding it. Jesus came into a world where people were raping, <laughs> where people were pillaging. We're going to look in a few weeks at the slaughter of the innocents. That's pretty traumatic. Jesus didn't come into sort of a joyful sort of Macy's shopping center world. He came into a world that was just full of trauma. And the question is, is can he help us at all? You see, we tend to think about the gospel, if you're, if you're an evangelical Christian, and you tend to think about Jesus, and, and if you say, what does Jesus do? We would say, well, he forgives my sins. Okay, that's great. Maybe if you're, you're really sort of like into theology, you could say he, he makes me as righteous as himself. That's true. But how many of us would think Jesus actually transforms my trauma? He transforms all these bad things that happen to me and enables me to see them in such a way that they are a net positive in my life instead of a net negative. That they are something that I actually can glory in and to look back and see the providence of God in my life and how he has sustained me throughout everything. That's 
why we're looking at trauma in the context of Advent. That in some sense, it's the greatest gift I could give you as a pastor. The question is, over the course of the four weeks, is whether or not you're going to be willing to open it. Whether or not you're going to be able to look at your own life, your own heart, acknowledge the fact that things have happened to you that Jesus needs to deal with. Now, what's interesting, um, one of the ways you tend, at least in my experience, that, that psychologists or therapists deal with your trauma is they start by looking at your family history. Right? That's, it's almost inevitable. Like I, had, I, I recently did 30 weeks of therapy in 10 days. Overachiever. And I had to do this trauma egg where I had to draw pictures of my whole family history for my therapist to work through. When in some sense, Matthew starts his gospel, and, and people are like, well, you know, why would he start his gospel that way? It's sort of boring. Or why would he do this? Well, we're going to talk about that. Um, what's interesting, so at, th at this point is usually where I would say, um, and we're going to look at three things today. Right? You guys are expecting that, I know. I came home last night, and this week has been so crazy. It, it, and you'll find out why at the end of the service. This week has been so crazy. I came home last night about 5 or 6 o'clock, and I'd been working on my sermon sort of feverishly, and Judy said, my wife said, how are you, how, you know, how do you, how's it going? Where are you? And I said, man, I, I got nothing. I, I said, I, I, don't, I, I don't even have three points. And, <laughs> and she said, Really? She said, come on, background, something, Jesus, right? Easy. You got this. <laughs> and I was like, thank you for boiling down my life's work <laughs> into background, something, and then Jesus. And so our points this morning, thanks to Mrs. Allen, will be background, something, and Jesus. So we look at this genealogy of Jesus. What's the, what's the background? What's going on here? Why would Matthew begin his genealogy with the back, with, with, or begin his gospel with the genealogy? And notice the very first words. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In that verse, you sort of, you know everything you need to know about where he's going with this. Because in Greek, it actually is the words of Biblios Genesis, which is basically the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. So he, he's writing to Jewish people, we think, and Jewish people wanted to know if this Messiah was legit or not. Like, what is his background? What is his family history? Where is it rooted? And so he basically, in the first verse, he gives us a summary of everything, right? Where he basically says the, the book, the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah, and he says, son of Abraham. Remember, the Abrahamic covenant is important to the Jews. Son of David. David was the greatest king to the Jews. And then he goes on to list all the people in Jesus' genealogy. Now, if you read through the genealogy of Jesus, it's pretty interesting, not only because every person in there, when you read their stories, their stories are full of trauma. What we typically would consider trauma. So when you, when, you, when you think about, like, even the very beginning, where it says that Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, man, just the, the, the family, like Jacob and Esau, 
right? Jacob, honestly, he was probably the victim of emotional incest by his mother, right? Remember, his mother treated him like he was her little man, her little boy, you know, like he did everything, where he was probably neglected by his father. And you notice how that begins to pan out in his life. He's a liar. All, you know, so that kind of stuff happens. What's also interesting in this genealogy, and, and everyone points it out, is that in this genealogy are four women. If you don't include Mary, Mary's the culmination. There are four women, and everyone points that out. They're like, wow, like in a patriarchal society, why would the Matthew include women in this genealogy? And people, everyone speculates, you know, he did it because he wanted to show that the gospel is not only for men, but it's also for men and women. Or the one that most people say is that he wants to show, because all of the women are Gentiles, and so he said, well, this is foreshadowing that the gospel is going to go not only to Jew, but also to Gentiles. And then, of course, everyone says all these women had particularly sort of seedy backgrounds. And so what that shows is that Jesus actually can save anybody or that he goes after the worst of sinners. Now, there's truth to that. But what's interesting is that the four women who are mentioned, regardless of their past, are, are, are noted as heroes in the Bible. So maybe there's another reason that they are in here. And the, what I want to do this morning is consider these four women. I want to look at their lives through the lens of trauma. And even more than that, I want to look at their lives through the lens of trauma that has been redeemed. In other words, this is going to be, it, it, it's weird for me because I've never done it, right? So here's the thing. Don't do something you've never done on a week that you don't have as much time to prepare. You're going to do it anyway. What I want to basically do this morning with these four women that, that are listed, basically remember the women that are listed are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. I want to do a group therapy session with them. And I want to tell each of those women, I want to talk to each of those women and point out to them how Jesus, their greater grandson, I'm not going to say great, 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 I'm just going to say greater, how their greater grandson has made sense of all the things that happened to them. That in him there is hope. In him there is redemption. He is the one that makes sense of what happened to them. Because imagine in the moment, all of these women, these things are happening to them. They're losing husbands. They're, one of them, them is a prostitute. They probably can't see it, what's coming. And they can, probably can't see God's hand in their lives unless someone points it out. The same is true for us, by the way, right? We get so down deep in the weeds of our own sin and sorrow and grief and suffering and shame that we can't see the work of God in our lives. We need someone else to point it out to us sometimes. That's what I want to do for these women. So let's start first. Notice it says um, in verse 3, it says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So what do we know about Tamar? Excuse me, Ken, did you bring my water there? Um, what do we know about Tamar? So what, what, one thing we know about Tamar is Tamar was a Canaanite, and she married in to a Jewish household that she threw her lot in with a different religion. She, in other words, she was a young believer. She was a young believer in a Jewish household. She was a new believer in a Jewish household. She marries, she doesn't just marry into a Hebrew family. She marries into a Hebrew family, and her father-in-law is Judah. 
Remember, Judah will be the one from whom the Christ will come. And she has this vague sense. So if, if the Christ will come from Judah, then that means one of his sons will have to produce an heir, and one of his sons is married to Tamar. So that means she feels some responsibility to produce an heir for the blessing bearer. You remember the story? So he, she marries the first brother, Er, Er, and the first brother is so wicked that God kills him. Do you think Tamar experienced any uh, pain or trauma at the hands of a wicked husband? She wouldn't be the first believing woman who thought she was marrying a believing man who was abused. Tamar, was that tough? Yeah. Tamar, then what happened? Well, then she married his brother, Onan. And Onan wouldn't give you a child, would he? Nope. What are you going to do now? Well, Judah says he's going to give me his third son. Maybe I'll have an heir through him. But he doesn't. And so Tamar, remember Judah's wife dies? He goes looking for a prostitute. Tamar says, I will, she dresses up like a prostitute. But notice she, she doesn't seduce him. She just stands there and see, to see what happens. And Judah comes in and he sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. And then Tamar, what happened after that? Imagine a therapist sitting with her. Tamar, what happened after that? And she, it, she would say, well, at that point, um, I was afraid because people started accusing me of immorality. Someone went and told Judah, they said, your daughter, your daughter-in-law is guilty of immorality. And Judah said, burn her, bring her out and burn her. But Tamar, you were smart enough. Remember when that cheapskate showed up and said he wanted a prostitute? He didn't even bring any money. And you said, why don't you leave your seal and your staff until you can pay me back? When you were dragged out in front of everyone, what happened? You pulled out that seal and that staff, and you showed them, didn't you? That Judah, the one from whom Messiah would come, was a cheapskate and a hypocrite. And here's the thing, Tamar. Tamar, what did he say when, when that happened? Tamar, look at me. Right. That's what my therapist would say all the time. Tommy? Look at me. Tamar, look at me. What did he say? He said, she is more righteous than I. How does that make you feel, Tamar? After all that pain, losing two husbands, wondering if your life was going to be taken from you because in your a small faith in, in, in your beginner, young faith, you thought, I need to produce an heir, come hook or crook, and you, didn't, you don't know the Jewish law. You just did what you thought you had to do. And what was the result of that? The one who is the blessing bearer says that you are more righteous than he is. Isn't that incredible? That you are proclaimed righteous? Well, it gets better. It gets much better than that, Tamar. Because you're going to have a greater grandson who will make you completely righteous. You see, the thing is, you, you, you are more, you're more righteous than Judah, but let's be honest. That's not a real high bar. Your greater grandson is going to come. 
And he is going to make you completely and utterly righteous. He's not going to say you're more righteous than me. He's going to say, Father, in, in your sight, she is well-pleasing to you because of me. That his righteousness will be given to you. And that, that reason that even happens is because of what you did. Tom, are you are a good woman. Man, the Presbyterians are constantly telling you what a sinful, awful wretch you are. But Tamar, there is goodness in you. And that goodness showed itself in your bravery. It showed itself in, in the way you thought through this. And it showed itself in the fact that you actually produced the air that Judah couldn't. Way to go, Tamar. You see how, how the, the, your greater grandson, when you, look at that, when you look at your life through that lens, can you see how there was purpose in everything that you went through? I hope you can talk to you for a second, Rahab. How are you today? Small talk. I'm fine. Rahab, let's talk about what happened to you. Rahab, what, what happened to you that would make you feel like being a prostitute was the best way to support your family? How hard must things have been? Because you supported your family. You had a, you, you had a home. All of that apparently was funded by you being a prostitute. And how much abuse did you take? How much abuse and how many years did you go through being a prostitute? And why in the world would you put your life on the line when Hebrew spies came to your house? Was it because you had hope in this God, Yahweh? You did, didn't you? How'd that turn out? Did he save you? Of course he did. You survived. You survived when all of Jericho fell down. And you went and you became an Israelite. You went and lived with them. I'm sure that was tough too because people looked down on you probably because you were Canaanite. People probably looked down on you because you used to be a prostitute. You know what, Rahab? People need to stop saying that. It really bothers me, Rahab, that whenever we mention your name in church, we say, Rahab the prostitute. Let me introduce you to my friend, Rahab the prostitute, that, that we have tagged you with a name that is attached to your shame and it is attached to things that have happened to you. Rahab, what is your real name? Look at me, Rahab. Look at me. Eyes right here. Look at me. What is your name? Is it Rahab the prostitute? No. It's Rahab, mother of Boaz, husband of Ruth. That you followed Yahweh and he promised to redeem you and he redeemed you and he changed your name. Your name is no longer Rahab the prostitute. It is Rahab the beloved. It's no longer Rahab who walks under a cloud of shame. It is Rahab who has been forgiven and redeemed. But here's, let me tell you this. Let me tell you something about your greater grandson. He is particularly fond of prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. 
You see, the very thing that people would call you to shame you, your greater grandson will come and he will pursue those very people. He will pursue people exactly like you. Does that give you any joy? Does that enable you to see how then all the things you went through, there was purpose in it, there was worth, there was value, that it is being redeemed, it has been redeemed, and is being redeemed right now? I thought you would say that. Let's talk to Ruth for a minute. Ruth, you were a widow. You were a Moabite. Israel, people in Israel hated Moabites, and yet you married one. I don't know what things happened to you then, but then your husband died. There was no greater trauma than to lose a spouse. The interesting thing, the, the, the inclination of most widows is to go inward. The inclination of most widows is to sort of shut down and become more isolated, and you didn't do that. You could have gone back to Moab. You could have gone back to your old faith. Instead, you stayed with your mother-in-law, Naomi. And she introduced you to this one called Boaz. He was your kinsman redeemer. And you know, Ruth, what bothers me about your story is the way people talk about Ruth. Remember when you got sort of dolled up and you went to the barn with Boaz and you offered himself, yourself to him and people say, oh, that Ruth, what a little hussy. You know, seducing Boaz into redeeming her. And we know that nothing could be further from the truth. According to the custom of the day, you went and offered yourself to Boaz as a wife, and he took you up on the offer. Simple as that. And when he decided that he was going to be your husband, he could not redeem you fast enough. He ran to make sure that everything needed for you to become his wife was paid in full. That's not scandalous. That's glorious, Ruth. There's nothing to be ashamed of there. It's not your fault that you lost your husband. It's not your fault that any of that happened. But in fact, you were redeemed by this man who loved you with a love that seemed like it was an everlasting love. It wasn't, but guess what? Your greater grandson, he will be a kinsman redeemer, not only to a lonely, widowed Moabite woman, but to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And just as Boaz gave up part of what he had to redeem you, the, the, to part of what he had to make sure that the, the, the bride price was paid, your greater grandson, he will give everything. He will give his whole life and his whole life for the world to redeem them. You understand that. Look at me, Ruth. Yeah. Last person I want to talk to, Bathsheba. Bathsheba. I, I am so sorry for what happened to you. I don't care what you were doing. I don't care if you were dancing naked on a roof. That doesn't give the most powerful person in the kingdom the right to take you as his own. It, he had no right to do that. And I'm so sorry for that. And then after that, he murdered your husband to cover up the crime. And then after that, you lost the baby that was conceived. I can't imagine the heartache and the brokenness and the trauma. But Bathsheba, none of that is your fault. 
It isn't your, what happened to you wasn't your fault. The question is, is, is there any goodness in it? We saw you be brave. Without you, Solomon would never have become king. We look at Solomon and say he was the greatest king who ever lived in the ancient Near East, but we forget that Solomon would never have taken the throne were it not for his shrewd and incredibly brilliant mother. You did that, Bathsheba. And because you facilitated and hung in there and followed Yahweh through all that and had Solomon, ultimately your greater grandson, he would actually not be the greatest king in the ancient Near East. He would be the king of kings. And if it gives you any consolation, Bathsheba, for a woman who is taken forcefully, for a woman who is given no choice as to whether she would offer herself up to a man that she didn't know yet, didn't want, your greater grandson, he is meek, humble of heart, a bruised reed he wouldn't break and a smoking flax he wouldn't extinguish that anyone who is willing could come unto him and he will give them rest it is the opposite of what you experienced with David I understand David repented I understand David turned back but there were consequences for the rest of his life you realize that because you actually were resilient and lived through that trauma that ultimately many other people would be healed of their trauma you understand that, Bathsheba? Yes, I do. And I can go through every character in that story and do the same thing. We tend to just look at the Bible characters and say, wow, you know, okay, Rahab the, the prostitute or Bathsheba who committed adultery with David. These were real people who experienced real horrible things and Jesus redeemed them. We can look at it and say, wow, look at Jesus worked in their life. Here's the kicker. Jesus is willing and able and, and committed to doing the same thing in your life and in my life. I, when I got to the end, I'll close with this. We'll call this the Jesus point. So I went into this. Remember, the reason I took sabbatical is because my, my father had died, my stepfather had died. There had been all this unresolved abuse. There had been all these things, and I thought, I need to talk to somebody. And by the time I got out of 10, 10 days worth of working through all this stuff, I was amazed. And I am now. When I look back at my life and see how God has worked through all those things, I'm not going to, this isn't therapy for me. I'm not going to, you know, read you all the things I wrote. But every single thing that for me was a, was, a, was a hard thing or something that happened to me, God has used it to bring glory to himself and goodness to me. The question you have to ask is, are you willing to engage that? You can't experience that until you're willing to actually look at the trauma. You can experience that until you're actually willing to, to open that gift and say, okay, what is inside of this? And so there's two things I'm going to suggest to you over the course of the next month that you consider. One is if you don't want to just run right out and get a therapist, right? There's a book entitled Redeeming Heartache by Dan Allender. Pick up that book and read it. It's going to encourage you to start looking into your own heart and, and considering some of your own trauma. And the second thing is, of course, to think about 
getting counseling, to think about talking to somebody. Because the problem is this, is we either transform our trauma, we either address our trauma, or we transmit it to other people. Are you angry all the time? Are you abusive yourself? What happened to you? Start dealing with that. Take it to Jesus. Start praying that Jesus will reveal that to you, and he will begin to change it. I look forward to the next three weeks as we talk more about this. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that you would um, come and reveal to us those places that we need to, to give to, to Jesus, the, the, the trauma, the things that happen to us, the things that we don't know how to address. I pray that we would bring them out into the light, that we would not be um, sick with secrets, but in fact we would be free and joyful with the joy of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.